This episode of Back to the Point is brought to you by Winter Sip and Support, which is an alumni event hosted by Brett Kelly of the class of 93 and Mike Vaughn from the class of 87. Uh, this is an opportunity for alumni to come and join members of BC High's Alumni Advisory Council at Brick and Beam in Quincy. Um, it'll be a good. It'll be a good night. So uh, this is happening Thursday, January 30th, from six to eight. So I uh, hope to see you there. Uh, and this week on the pod, we get to sit down with a living legend uh, at BC High, Mary Farrell, who is in the middle of um, her 30th academic year teaching at BC High. It's incredible. It's just That's just incredible. She's been there for 30 years. Um, she's been teaching math and computer science and uh, coaching sailing and doing all kinds of things uh, since 1990. So we sat down with her. We talked about that stretch of time, what she's seen, what she's learned. Uh, we talked about... Um, her time coaching the sailing team and um, where she started, where she is today. Uh, and we got into some other kind of interesting stuff. We had this, you'll hear it, but we had this one tangent where we got into the weeds a little bit on the difference between knowledge and wisdom um, and kind of the passivity with which you can absorb knowledge uh, and and why that might be a little bit of a dangerous thing. But we, I don't know. You'll you'll hear. We 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 started to get into it. We we said we should table it uh, for maybe another time, um, but we we got into it a little bit, which was really interesting. I, I that was that was kind of a cool part of the pod. Um, anyway, Mary Farrell, thirty year teacher at BC High. Let's roll. Right, as I mentioned in the intro, we have Mary Farrell here today. We just did a, a mathematical equation to figure out that uh, you're in your 30th academic year. Yes. That's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. You started in the, in the fall of 1990. Yes. Wow. That's awesome. One of the things that I was wondering is, how did you, what led you to teaching? Let's start there. I think, I think that'd be a great thing to hear is, what led you to want to teach? Um... I think what happened, it, it, it took a while to come to it because, uh, uh, let's see, I would say like during college, I think there was a lot of, there was that sense of like, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? And, mm -hmm. and um, when I was in college, I was kind of like, well, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a lawyer. I'm from a big family. I had an older sister who was a doctor. Another sister was a lawyer. And I think um, there was just this natural, like, you don't want to do the same thing as the sibling had done. So <laughs> I was kind of trying to figure that out. Write your own story. Uh, yes. Yeah. And I had a brother who, one of my, all my brothers went to BC High, but my oldest brother, or my second oldest brother, had gone to Salzburg and taught uh, English, uh, taught history there, but his German became very good. So I had this idea, like, all right, I want to go abroad. And I had always uh, mm -hmm. liked languages. I'd studied languages in high school and in college. So I ended up in Japan teaching English there, which was a thing a lot of people did in the mid-80s. And um, But when I came back from Japan, I kind of had this feeling like I really don't want to uh, work for a Japanese company and move to San Francisco or move to New Jersey, which is where the pockets of those companies were at that time. Mm -hmm. And it was like in the back of my head, I remember getting offered a job 
from a school when I first came back and there was this feeling of, no, I don't want to do that. That's, I don't want to be in a school just yet. And I ended up, um, what came up was I was tutoring at the time and uh, I ended up uh, at the Japanese consulate in Boston. Okay. And, um, and that, was a, that was a good experience because it was local. It, it kept my kind of interest in Japan alive. Uh, but being a, what we call a local worker in a foreign consulate, you're, you're kind of just like helping with things, cutting up newspapers as I like to kid. I worked for the, um, uh, the two consuls, the political and the um, economic consuls, and you're a local worker, so you're not really, um, uh, you know, your, your scale of what you do is, is limited. And my mm-hmm. Japanese was not at the level of some of the other people in the, uh, in the consulate. However, I think what was happening at the time was my really accepting that um, I like the tutoring and uh, kind of allowing myself to develop, like, what, what am I going to do next? And so I was at the consulate a couple of years. I actually worked um, at another place. Uh, I think I was at a hotel for, like, six months. Mm-hmm. But basically, I remember when I either saw the ad for BC High looking for a math teacher, mm-hmm. and suddenly, like, it hit me, gee, I, I want to do that. Like, mm-hmm. I think I'm interested by that. And... Basically, it was a realization that in high school, I remember being the student. I was a good student, but I was a very critical student of my teachers. <laughs> I would sit there, and I would be like, wow, that teacher didn't answer the question that kid asked. Oh, wow. I, I would just be like, why isn't she answering what that person asked? Oh, wow. And then I would also have this sense of um, fairness, unfairness. This teacher said, we weren't going to have a quiz, and now it's a pop quiz. And, and I had this sense of, like, that adolescent, like, that's wrong, you know. Yeah. But I was also tutoring in high school. Like, I, I, I had a couple of tutoring jobs, and I always liked them. Yeah. I, didn't do, I didn't really have babysitting jobs. I, I tutored. And so it was really allowing myself to choose it because, um, and, and to be honest, you know, I, I went to Harvard, and when you're at Harvard, nobody's saying, you, you should be a high school teacher when you, when you get out of here. Mm-hmm. Everything was, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to, what, what's your next step? Are you going to go down to New York? You finance. Gonna, or finance or, or yeah. graduate, you know, level um, education or studies. And, mm-hmm. and so at that time, it really wasn't a thing that people chose. And yeah. um, so I think that was also me letting myself choose it and being like, yeah, I want to do this. And I know the minute I came here, I, I was like, wow, I'm not looking at the clock. I love this. Yeah. And what I didn't realize also is that BC High was so generous in allowing you to develop what you were interested in. I remember going to Bill Kameza, you know, and I remember um, it was probably Norm Swain, too, at the time, like, uh, I want to teach Japanese. And it's like, well, I'll put it in the course book and see what happens. And it took a few years mm-hmm. for that to take off. Like, but at least I could put it in the book and I had an interest in it. Um, I, my whole experience of developing um, the sailing program, uh, even though there were financial constraints, I felt like people were allowing me to, hey, if, if we moved over here to Dorchester Bay instead of being on the river, mm-hmm. that would be so much better, and people helped me do that. So, yeah, you know, Jimmy Cotter um, as one person and Father Fahey as well. And, um, you know, all those things, I always felt like I could do something or I could, if I had an idea, I could try it. And and even if it didn't take right away, like the beauty of when you offer a course, if kids aren't interested, they're not going to take it. Right. So when they are interested, yeah. they will take it. And I always felt... Um, that that's what I saw that uh, 
So I guess this is a long answer to no, why no, I end up. Uh, but basically, it was me allowing myself, really resonating and being like, "Wow, I love teaching." Yeah. And um, you know, it 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 wasn't. I've seen over the years. I really feel like it's a much more respected profession now, in terms of you can have a very good education and afterwards be like, I want to be a teacher. And people go, oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I won't repeat what I heard at my fifth year <laughs> reunion from college where it's like, oh, yeah, when, yeah, are you gonna, yeah. when are you going to do something else? Yeah, I guess. And it was just like, really, you know? Yeah, no. no. But anyway, um, but it's been wonderful being here. And um, yeah, it has been a long time. So No, no, that's great. And so, in, And you said that your brothers were, were students here at one time. Uh, yes. Were they jealous when you got the job here uh, to come teach? No, I don't think so. I think they were happy oh, really? for me. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. no, no. I, and actually, I remember in high school, I couldn't help it. I knew that one of my brothers was taking German and the other one, they had Latin and Greek. And I was like, well, my high school doesn't have that. <laughs> and it was a natural thing. I mean, this is a big school in yeah. the history of the Jesuits. There were a lot of things. And um, jokingly, I used to get, I wanted to go here, but I didn't want it to be a co-ed school, which is kind of... Stupid. I was like, I just want to be able to go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, a single way yeah, to yeah, just yeah. go through the four years. Um, but uh, no, I think they were happy for me. That's and they good. got to, I think it took a while for them to see how it was for me as a teacher being here. I mean, you come in, and I came in, my father had gone here, and it was such a transformative place for his um, development, really, mm -hmm. because of where he came from. And so I think. I came in having all that in the background, but what happens after a while, and it has to, I think, for everybody who's connected, um, and I'm sure this is true for Grace Regan, is that you develop your own presence and your own history, even though you have this other history behind you. I'm yeah. sure it's true for Steve Hughes, everybody, sure. and all, you know, like Tim Westfield, anybody who yeah. went here for you now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that experience of how you... You make it your own, and it changes when you come back um, in the workforce or some other capacity. Yeah. So, no, that's, yeah. that's a good point. Um, you mentioned that when you were a student, uh, you 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 were kind of a, a critical student. You, yes. How does that how does that figure into your teaching, and how does that figure into your interactions with students in your class who may be right, uh, right. Of, the, of the critical ilk? Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I appreciate it because I think if I'm not too tired, yeah. <laughs> I can... Um, I, you definitely... It's um, the, the exciting thing about the profession is that um, it's a constant craft that you work on. Yeah. So you, you are thinking about... I love the fact that I get to teach... I've taught calculus for I don't know at least 25 years probably. It mm -hmm. took you know I had to wait a few years to, to actually get an opportunity to teach it. But computer science I've taught for 29 years. And this is my 30th year, and you get to think about something. Um, one of my favorite math quotes from uh, a French mathematician, Poincaré, is to think deeply of simple things. You can revisit what you do, think about it, make adjustments, and so. When I think about the students, yeah. I, and because they're adolescents, and I remember this part of adolescence is you've got to be fair, and so if you say something, you got to do it. Yeah. And if you mess up, you got to admit it. Yeah. You 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 just you should just do that. And I remember as a young teacher having to learn like, oh, I made a mistake. I have to admit it. I got to just take this off the table. Yeah. And if you do it, it just dissipates, and it's like, oh, yeah. that worked. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Or I don't know the answer. Or so I think. That's in the back of my head, and my own experience with, um, honestly, 
my high school uh, career, I, I, w I was a really good student. I don't think I was challenged the way these guys are here. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to college, it was the opposite. I was I, I make jokes like I was getting my head kicked in on some classes, yeah. especially the upper level uh, theoretical math classes. And it taught me that reality of um, what happens when you don't get it anymore? What happens when you struggle? How do you... Um, how do you work with that? And I think I want to show the kids, like, I understand what it's like to do really well, but I also understand what it's like not to do well. Yeah. And, and what do you do with that? And it happens, especially in math, we tend to have this idea that, oh, you get math, you don't get math. And the reality is that all of us are on this trajectory where at some point it becomes more difficult, just yeah. like anything you do. Sure. And that's where you have to work at it. And Honestly, for kids who experience that right away, they're probably becoming better students earlier than the guys who got it and are kind of coasting for a while. Mm -hmm. And it's a natural thing. It's probably a natural thing with anything, whether it's English or history or writing or any craft. So I'm trying to understand that they're on this journey of eventually getting more challenged, wherever that is, yeah. whether it's Algebra 1 or Geometry or Pre-Cal or Calculus. Um, all of it challenging. Yeah, all of it. Yeah, challenging. yeah, and that's that's fine. I would. I hated writing papers. I, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you know, there were things that I was like, how do I do this? Sure. And that's where I want them to know that I understand uh, what they're struggling with, and I want them to be able to understand that's natural. And and how do you work with that? Um, sure. So so I think of that when I'm with them, and I think. I got to be fair. I got to be clear. One one of my best teachers ever. She probably was my best teacher. Was um, Deb Hughes Hallett at Harvard, and she's written calculus books, and she was just amazing. I did not even do that well in her class, mm -hmm. but I could appreciate the clarity of her argument. Like she would get up on the board, and it was just this beautiful argument. I felt like I was following it while it was happening, and then. When I went home, I was like, what? You know, did I get it? And yeah. that's why notes are important. Yeah, yeah, nice little plug, <laughs> yeah. For, plug the importance for notes. of notes. Let's keep writing notes. It's true, though, because, well, I, I'm, I'm an attorney now. Yes. And, and what I found is the skill of note-taking. Uh, it's, it's a skill, it, yeah. It, it's so important, in, and I think in any profession. But, you know, if I have a conversation with a partner, I have to take precise notes about what they want right. and what the le legal issue is, et cetera. Right. Or, or if I'm on a call with a client, I have to be... It's it's really a skill that I learned here that I've taken That's through great. college, through law yes. school, and now, yes. and now into my and profession. And how important, you know. Oh, so important. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, I broke your No, no, no. I Let's make a plug for it Let's because... Everybody, <laughs> notes are important. important. Yes. <laughs> yes, very important. Yeah. And, um, this episode is brought to you by <laughs> notes. Uh, no, I'm just Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so I think, I, I think that's what informs us. In fact, at, when I was a department chair, one of my favorite questions to ask um, any uh, prospective teachers here was, D describe your favorite teacher. Did, what mm. do you like about your favorite teacher? And then conversely, talk about your worst teacher. Ooh. No names. No, but no, it's like, course. that's what informed me was this woman who had this clarity of argument. So I, I'm always, that's for me the craft of how clear can I be. Now the reality is, even when you present a particular argument, you're not hitting everybody all the time. Sure. There's somebody who thinks differently, who has a different idea, and so that's where extra help. In an ideal world, you would have enough time to make three different arguments, or but you don't. Yeah, to, so, to, to, uh, but extra everybody. help, yeah, yeah. plug for extra help. No, yeah. That's where you get to go one-on-one -on -one and you get to hear 
what the student is struggling with and kind of refine your understanding of what, where they're at and how you can make it clearer for them yeah. given where they're at. Yeah. What I've always found fascinating, and this was true when I taught Algebra 1, mm-hmm. was um, kids who weren't getting it, whatever they were doing was an algebra. It, 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 they were making the same mistakes in a consistent manner, and that fascinated me mm-hmm. because there was a mathematical underpinning of this... Um, they were doing the same thing every time. It was just not the one that we were using. Yeah, like, right, right. No, you actually do have to distribute over addition. It was like, <laughs> it was interesting that it was consistent. Yeah. So even kids who were struggling, I was like, wow, there's a consistency there. And how can you tap into that consistency even though they're doing the wrong thing and it's not gonna it's not gonna go well in the assessment? But it, that I found fascinating, mm. which is almost like there is this kind of we all have it in us. Um, especially because math can take a rap where I'm good at it, I'm not good at it. Nobody ever says, oh, I'm not good at English. I just can't read or I'm not going to, yeah, yeah, right. you know, if, if, you know, we can assume that, you know, you learned it in the lower grades. Yep. Um, and there is that uh, aspect of mathematics. It's like, no, math should be something that you can work on and get better at just as you become a better writer, a better note taker, yep. a better understander, you know, of whatever it is. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah, interesting. Um, so... You've been here for 30, 30, 30 academic years. I, I, I have a two-part question for you. The first question is, what's, what's, what's kind of the most palpable change at the school over the 30 years? And the second piece of this, uh, well, let's start there. Okay. Let's, let's start with that. Mm. What, uh, <laughs> what's been the biggest change like, that, that impacts you, I guess, on your, in your day-to-day? Hmm. You know. That's interesting. Um, biggest change. It's it's hard to say because there's a natural change that should occur in anything that's around for 30 years. I mean, I'm getting older. I'm an older teacher now. So I look at myself and I'm so aware of how different I am as an older teacher that um, I have much more patience, more understanding. I'm willing to, you know, give the kids more room to be themselves instead of just control, 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 which is the way I started. You're so afraid of losing control when you're a young teacher, especially a female teacher. I mean, you just, I I shouldn't say that wouldn't be true of a male teacher, but you just don't have this added heft of, I'm bigger than you, you know, like, or, um, but, um, so I think as an institution, there's a natural amount of change that should be acceptable. You know, sometimes you, you can get into these ruts where you're like, oh, the students are this, the students are that, but it's like, I think, I think what I do notice is, um, well, as an institution, we have more money and means that we ever had. I remember, I can kid jokingly, I did not make my age. I was 26 when I started. I think I made 22,000 or 23,000. So, um, you know, it was not commensurate with, you know, having to have a life outside of living at home or whatever. Right, yeah. But... Um, there were those things. So the means that we have is, is much bigger and kind of our articulation of what we're about because there, there was a loss of Jesuit presence, like right. the number of Jesuits, the number of Jesuits in the classroom. So these are things that have been happening all along. So I've kind of been accepting them as they've happened all along, but I, but I would have to say that's just a thing that anybody notices. But at the same time, there was an increase in our kind of like we have to articulate what our Jesuit values are. We have to say this because we can't take for granted that <laughs> presence. So those are good things. And we can't take for granted, um, 
you know, even our Catholic identity, like we have to be more deliberate about, you know, are we having retreats? Are we helping kids who have less of a background in this understand what a spiritual role means in their life? So these are things you could say in different aspects, um, financially, um, really the big thing is an institution, how do we maintain Jesuit identity with dis- decreased number of Jesuits? Mm-hmm. It is different. And and actually what's refreshing the past couple of years is seeing more young Jesuits and they're in the classroom. That's exciting, you know? Yeah. Um, but other things that have changed over 30 years as an institution, let me see. Um, I think I'd have to talk about the students. Adolescence doesn't change. I mean, those things don't change, but I think... A big thing of how they're learning is changing, and, and it's a good thing. Like, I think there is more an expectation on the teacher that if, you're, if your kids aren't doing well mm-hmm. or they're not being successful, like, what can you do? It isn't just, I taught, I'm done. Like, I presented yeah. it. See I, you told later. I mean, the craft, the craft has experienced a lot of attention, and there's much more emphasis. Like, I don't think anybody's coming in here now getting a job who didn't teach before. I mean, I a lot of us walked in, like, I, I came literally, like, uh, let me see, I taught conversational English in Japan, but yeah. I haven't really been in a classroom, and it was it was a rude awakening that first sure, year. Sure, I bet. Um, yeah. But it was good. It was sure. like, so I think aspects, and for the students, my latest kind of concern that I see, I think it's inevitable, is like the... The reality of how technology, how they're experiencing technology and this kind of like visualization or not visualization, but this, this, um, they're viewing things, that passivity that comes, there's a passivity and an activity of looking at stuff. Mm -hmm. They're looking at things to understand things. They're not... Mm -hmm. They're not writing, like, it's just a reality. Like, I'm, I'm writing stuff down. I have to remind them to write stuff down. Mm-hmm. But what they can do is they can look at this topic at Khan Academy or someplace afterwards. So they can get information about it somewhere else. Um, that's a reality in the classroom. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't have the answer on what are we losing and what are we gaining as this is happening, but it's definitely happening. And they're... They're, um, and this is true of everybody, like mm-hmm. every young person, like the phone, it's happening to me too. Like, yeah. you know, you're checking things, you're interrupting, you're not getting a lot of quiet time. I mean, all of us, I mean, 30 years ago, kids would have been tuning out with music. It's not that that didn't happen, but what's happening to us as we kind of constantly interrupt our focus and what is happening to us as we watch things rather than think about things? This is interesting. So I think this is a really uh, important point and also something that, um, you know, it's gotten more attention lately, but uh, it's interesting that you mentioned it in my, the commencement speaker for Boston when I graduated from BC in mm-hmm. 2008 mm-hmm. was David McCullough. Oh, yeah. Great writer. Right. Historian. Yes. Um, and his whole speech was oriented around this principle of there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. There's a fundamental difference. And his whole point, I mean, obviously 2008 was a, a different mm. media age even then. Yeah. But he was saying that getting facts or absorbing things from a screen is not knowledge. You know, you take in, you say, oh, you know, the, the population density of whatever is right. blank. Right. But wisdom is an experiential uh 
uh, it's an experiential value that you can only derive from applying that knowledge or getting right. into the real world and trying right. to use that knowledge right. or seeing you know, uh, certain things, experiencing certain, certain things, which is obviously like a very Jesuit right. experiential learning, et cetera, is a very Jesuit principle. But that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing to talk about the the difference between, you know, what you're absorbing versus, you know, wh- how that actually looks in the real world. But I think, um, I think that's a natural thing though, like that when you're, I don't, I don't see that as a, um, I think it's a, anybody learning for the first time. It's it's kind of like how do you survive with it? You're like, well, I got to get this information. Sure, and it's part of being young. Yeah, and I think it really like the the wisdom part. It would be rare for it to happen when you're young, but now you have this extra layer on top. Yeah. that you um, there's a there's an innate passivity that's being layered that's on something. So it's, there's two things going on. That's, it's not, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I agree with you, but I, that was true of me when I was in high school where I was like, okay, just get this information, yeah. you know, absorb those facts. It wasn't until later, honestly, I always think about calculus. Like, I was just like, get it done, crank it out. Kids, we always laugh when I say that. Yeah. But it wasn't until I taught calculus that I was like, oh, the yeah. ground is moving. Yes. Now I really can make sense of this. I had done well taking courses in it, so I think that's a natural part of youth as you get older sure. or as you wrestle with something. But now what worries me is there's this added layer of something that is creating even more passivity, which is staring at something. Yeah. You know, and, and it's funny. I've heard other people make this comment. I, I would be interested in, especially if you can do an interview with an English teacher or a history teacher. Sure. What does this do to imagination? You know, and that's yeah. that's a separate topic. No, but no, it's just it's, it's I don't think about imagination in math class, but no, no, no. unless it, it, yeah. it comes up, but it's, yeah. I don't think about it. But I I do wonder, you know, as we watch more things, what does that do to us? Well, yeah, and it's it, the passivity is interesting because like, what does it do? What does it do to creativity and imagination and things like that? But also, like, even the the core rote skills of research. Yes. You know, yes. like, if I have a question, I can literally type it into something and, it, and I can get some form of an answer. Right, right. You know, whether that's what I was looking for or and I need to go a little deeper is another thing. But there's a there's an instantaneousness, you know. I, right. Yeah. So anyway, yes. that's, that's interesting. You and I can talk for hours. <laughs> I can tell. And, and, and this is, no, yeah. this is, we digress. We yes, digress. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The editor um, can take care of that. Yeah, like, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Remember that two-hour segment where yeah. it went off? They just yeah. went, yeah, yeah. That's, that's for sure. Um, we only have a couple minutes because I know you have to run to class, but. I'm actually okay. Just so you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you talk about, uh, let's talk about sailing. Sure, sure. How did it start? And, I mean. Obviously, BCI Sailing has been a successful program. Uh, you know, ch- let's just let's just talk about how we got to where we are today. <laughs> all right, yeah. all right. So the 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 first thing that was funny was um, when I came. I remember my interview with Bill Kameza. I remember it was kind of a rocky thing. I had like yeah. Anyway, bottom line was when I finally got the job and mm-hmm. took the job. It was it was actually early August, and I remember coming out of his office and Bill Collins was waiting for me, and I didn't know who he was, but. Um, he, older teacher, English teacher, and yeah. he basically says, so, uh, would you be interested in coaching the sailing team? And, uh, basically he was interested in, in not coaching the sailing team anymore. Hand He'd done his off. time, yep. handed off. And I remember I had this split second where I, I think I said to him, like, <laughs> well, I don't know how to sail. And he's like, no, that's no problem. And I remember thinking, okay, he just got offered a job. 
you're new at this place, you're going to say yes. Yeah. Like, just say yes. Right. So I said yes, and that was the beginning of this adventure where I had been a, a rower in college. I'd rowed for four years, mm. and... Um, and I was like, wow, sailing. I don't know anything about sailing, but I like water. And um, <laughs> so the beginnings were basically going to the river. Um, and and the boys were great because I was asking them everything. But I had to be like, I don't know anything about this. Yeah. But they were happy to have somebody that would take them to the river. So yeah. so basically the, the learning curve was huge as I learned about the sport, but also learned about what... I guess what what I brought to it eventually, like at the, in the beginning, I really was mystified by the rules, mystified by, I mean, rowing is basically, it was a very um, labor-intensive workout, be in shape, you know, be on the water. Yeah. Just, but, yeah. but you weren't using the water to, or the wind to understand how to move something. You were just, it was not brute force, but it was basically your fitness and your technique right. with somebody else and blah, blah, blah. So then we got to sailing where it was like the wind. The wind is doing everything in my understanding of the wind in this boat. So anyway, I guess the early part was recognizing that I didn't understand much about it, recognizing that there was a lot to understand, and then basically being like, all right, um, take the kids out. They like this set them up so they can be successful. And that was really where, for me, the biggest thing was when I saw the opportunity because I basically had formed a friendship with um, the Milton coach at the time, Jill Drowen. Mm -hmm. She was also coming to the river. So here she is at Milton. She lived at Hingham, I think. She's coming to the river. I'm going to the river. We were going to the river, and, you know, we were taking the train, you know, walking to the train, taking the train, you know, sailing, and then coming home. It was very limited practice. I think it was like 45 minutes by the yeah. time we got there, and yeah. if that. But basically, the river gave me the background of, okay, we're on the water, kids like this, kind of managing things. But I didn't do much. I mean, basically, community boating had everything set up. You, you were able to take a launch out. I think I had learned some launch skills there. But... I wasn't really responsible for anything. Mm -hmm. So then I had this opportunity. It was um, 97 or 98 when she got her boats. And I went, it was probably 97, and I remember going to races. Because what was always true was we brought the kids to wherever. So I was bringing the kids to Tabor, bringing them to these places where people had their own boats. Yeah. And you could just see, wow, they can control all these variables that we can't control. Right. Um, naturally, they had a lot of money to have this uh, set up this way. But... Jill made me think, Mary, you could do this. I mean, I, I looked at the water as we do now, as we can now. Right, right from, out the window. Yeah, right out the window. And it was just like, why can't we go out there? Sure. And that was really the beginnings of, all right, how would I do this? She gave me some advice. It was like, if I could get a used fleet, mm -hmm. if I could get a launch, and then bring everything here, that would be so amazing. We could walk to practice. We could go out there. And that was really, that was 19... 98, mm -hmm. when Father Fahey gave me the money, and Jim Carter also, and we split the cost of a launch, I think, between the school and him, Yeah, and I laugh when I think of it as a 13-foot whaler, Grace Regan can tell you about that, I'm sure she <laughs> used it or whatever at the time, but, yeah. but the bottom line was, um, we brought the program out there, that was really where I knew we would be able to change it, because we would be able to practice more, get a lot more experience, and we would be one of the few schools at the time that had their own boats. 
yeah. and could walk to practice. And, and it's still true that there are very few programs. I I know Tabor walks to practice, Hotchkiss, and we did. Mm. And everybody else, they're taking, I mean, I shouldn't say everybody else right now, but um, everybody else is taking at least a short bus or yeah. a little run to get to the water. And so that was huge. And, and, and luckily that year, 1998, I had had some great sailors prior to that, but we were always limited by... You know what we could do. Sure. Um, and um, so in 1998, I remember the freshman class that came in, just a lot of guys with a lot of experience, and that was the first group that won the states their junior year and their senior year. Yeah. And then you know, um, other sailors came along. I don't want to name everybody and then leave somebody off and feel bad. No, no, no. But there were a bunch of guys who. They basically had then that opportunity to practice, and this was the part that I realized. What I did bring to it, because I always felt ignorant. It was this awful feeling of feeling like I didn't grow up doing this. I don't really understand these rules. It's like chess. And so the things that came up were I could work them the way I was worked in rowing. Rowing was about equipment. It was about opportunity. And if you had, when I was at Harvard, we were the only ones with the indoor tanks, and that's why we were successful. I mean, now rowing is so different. But at the time... We were so successful because nobody else had their own boats or had full-time coaches. And so, especially Radcliffe, like that was the deal. And so I knew that if we had our own equipment and we could be worked on it, we were going to get better and we were going to have that advantage. And so, you know, rowing has changed exponentially about that, but sailing has also changed that way. So so basically now I look at it like... um, you know, it's it's hard to stay competitive because so many more people have boats and have their own stuff. But definitely taking advantage of those things yeah. is what helped us. And um, the school has been supportive. I mean, I was able to get another fleet um, wow. because I was always repairing stuff. And I've learned yeah. about that. And, again, the kids were helpful and, yeah. and always using them to help me because it's like, you know, I can't put these boats in the water by myself. I need your parents. I need this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then other opportunities that came up, I think the, the third big thing that happened was um, I got opportunities to umpire when I really didn't know stuff, but that's what really helped me understand the rules. So yeah. So I started to develop that as well. So so I, I guess. You know what's a really cool aspect of the story you just told? The idea of the coach, you as a member of the team. You know, it sounds like from early on... I had to be. Yeah, yes, it was like... I had to be. <laughs> you were right there with everybody. Like, yeah. you know, a lot of times, for whatever reason, whether it's a dynamic of the team or whatnot, the coach is, to a certain extent, separate. You know, it's the team. The coach directs the team. Yeah. But it sounds like there was a lot of, like, you were part of the team. Right, right. In bringing this program up and in working with the guys and everything like that. So yeah. That's, that's that was a, good. It, yeah. It's true. I never think of that. But, it, I mean, I do think of it. But I had no choice. And yeah, yeah. Um, But that was – and they were great. And I, I even remember one guy saying it to me. It was – I think it was Ben Morris. It was this particularly frustrating race where we lost because of a protest. And protests are like these rules. And at the time, I, I just felt so vulnerable to – not really you don't want to cheat to win and you don't want to win because you didn't understand something and um it got ruled against the other team it's it's an aspect of the sport that i wrestle with kind of accepting that that's part of it but anyway i remember ben making a comment like you're out there with us like you're on the water and i was like yeah it was like you're 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 with them in the weather 
and you're with them. You're not sailing the way they're sailing, but when you're in a launch, there's um, there's a there's a very active part about being a sailing coach. You're dropping yeah. marks, you're picking them up, you're doing all this stuff, and you're in the weather with them. Not to say that other coaches aren't. I mean, ski. I, I did assistant ski coach one season where you're in the weather, and I think that's important. And I I can't speak to the others, but I, I think you're right. My ignorance brought me in it in a way that I had to. I just had to be like, and so what was interesting, and this probably helped them, when we were in big championships, it's like, guys, yeah. this is you. Like, they weren't looking to me. I was just there. I gave a prep talk, but I was yeah. like, they were always kind of having to figure it out on their own, and I think that was good for them yeah. competitively, you know? Yeah. Well, and and two things on that. There's a great empowering life lesson there mm-hmm. like you 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 guys did this you know like and the the other thing i wanted to say is uh in an area that that where you're where you, you use the word ignorance but I, I you know in an area where you're not so ignorant it sounds like you're quote unquote in the weather with your students as well uh oh, yes. you're, 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 it sounds like you you try and meet them where they are and 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 bring them to to, to I, I don't know that that phrase it's definitely the episode title i'm oh, definitely going nice. i'm definitely like going to call you're in Whoa, the weather you're right, in the weather yeah. with them uh, yeah cuz i mean weather and i i think you're right you're <laughs> You're trying to, it's such, this is what makes it endlessly interesting to me as a teacher is that, and, and I think everybody can speak to this, it's an active dynamic thing, working with a human being, understanding where they're at. I mean, obviously, you know, you 25 kids in front of you, whatever, but yeah. you're trying to respond. Everything I've learned is because they, when they didn't understand something and they could voice it, I learned something about the way they thought about that material, and it was like, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Or when they asked something I didn't know, it was like, I don't know, I have to think about this. Yeah. And that activity, right, you've got to let yourself be vulnerable. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that, yeah, the teaching was I came in with this strong background, academic, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But learning to allow yourself to be vulnerable without losing control because we have to learn the stuff because we have to move forward. Right. And, it, and it's still something that I... I'm giving them more space in the classroom than I ever gave when I was younger. Like I, yeah. but I really feel like they're learning more as a result of that. Sure. But I, they'll still see me like, oh, she's going off on like quiet. <laughs> you yeah, know, like yeah, yeah. I still want certain things. But of course, you're right. Well, you need a space to actually yeah, teach. Like, yeah, that makes you need sense. to you need to do that too. Yeah. So I think. That's a nice. It's nice to hear you say that. I don't think about. I love oh no! I just. It, 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 I. I was kind of distilling that over the yeah. course of the way that you talked about teaching, and then the way you talked about coaching. There's a lot of similarities there, where you're kind of, you're in it with your students. You're in yeah. the weather with them, which yeah. is what, um, an interesting way to phrase it. Um, Mary Farrell, thank you. Thank you for spending time <laughs> with me uh, this morning. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. And that does it. Great conversation. Thank you so much to Mary Farrell for coming on and uh, spending time with me, sharing all of your knowledge and your wisdom. Uh, that was I. That was a blast. So thank you to you. Keep keep going. Thirty one, thirty two, thirty three. Keep going. With this, uh, this school is lucky to have you. So thank you. Um, thank you to Mike O'Brien for help setting this up. As always, uh, thank you to Kristen Brophy, the fairy pod mother. Um, for just your wizardry. Um, Thank you to everyone at PCI who helps make this podcast possible. And obviously the biggest thank you goes out to all of you. Um, 
it's just really nice to see kind of the numbers. You know, we get stats back on who's listening and who's tuning in and how often people download this podcast. And uh, I'm happy to say that, that you know, we keep growing. Um, every episode that we push out grows a little bit. Um, and it's nice to see. So thank you to all of you for listening. Um, we want to keep it. We want to keep it fresh and interesting. So uh, if there's anything that you guys want to see uh, on the pod or things that I can do differently or any of us can do differently, we're definitely open to that. So um, send along your thoughts uh, back to the point at bchigh.edu uh, at rickgoulding3 on Instagram. I'm happy to take DMs and uh, any feedback you want to send along that way. That's fine. BC High Eagles is is the school's uh, Instagram as well. Um, but let me know. But but thank you as always. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll talk to you soon.